Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is, well, it's about math from 100 years ago. And a woman named Emmy Noether established herself as one of Germany's top mathematicians around the turn of the 20th century. And she figured out things like advanced algebra that no one had ever figured out. And in 1918, she published a theory that was a foundation for 20th century physicists' understanding of reality. And she showed that symmetries in nature implied the conservation laws that physicists had discovered that they didn't quite understand. And this idea of conservation of energy is a requirement for symmetry, which is what nature and our bodies is actually based on. And similarly, conservation of momentum, which is at the core of a lot of our modern physics, came from this very same idea. So who would have thought that observations of nature actually led to all of this stuff, and all of that came from math? Today's guest is none other than Sean Stevenson. And Sean is one of the, the hugest people I've ever met. And you may know him from his 70 million YouTube views and his 25 years of speaking on stage and working to change the world. And he's actually almost three feet tall. And I, I first met Sean several years ago uh, at a networking event and I saw him on stage and got to talk afterwards and I was just blown away at, at the, the love and compassion and just joy uh, that, that he projects in everything he does. Uh, even though he has uh, lived with uh, brittle bone disease, which kills most people long before they reach his age. And he has this amazing story of uh, not just resilience and survival, which is, uh, which is amazing in and of itself, but of just going beyond that into a, a place of, of gratitude and service that is just unique in any human being. So I wanted to bring his mindset uh, to all of you today so that you can sort of understand what goes on in in his mind and, and just in his his whole way of being. So Sean, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure to be here. There's nowhere else in the world I'd rather be right now than a hot tub or here, either one. Well, we, we thought of doing this one in a hot in tub. In a hot but, tub, yeah. But it was one or of those, a cold plunge, right? It was one of those rent by hour hot tubs. Yeah. I just, I wasn't going to go there. Hey, listen, I'm not here to judge. <laughs> <laughs> now, Tell me a little bit about brittle bone disease because yeah. you were talking before we started the cameras and you you were saying that that a lot of your life experience is what taught you uh, sort of to be who you are, but also just was a source of your humor, which is just omnipresent. Uh, just kind of walk me through what it was like to shift from survival into where you are now. So, you know, the the opening line of every talk that I've ever given in decades is that when I was born, the doctors told my parents that I would be dead within the first 24 hours of my life. And I'm happy to report 39 years later, all those doctors are dead and I'm still here. <laughs> nice. And that goes over everywhere. Well, except for at hospitals, Dave, they don't like that. Yeah, yeah. A little sensitive a little on that one. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, with this condition, childhood was just, Physically brutal. Uh, something as simple as sneezing, Dave, would break a collarbone. Oh. And if you've ever broken a collarbone, it's one of the worst bones to break. Uh, maybe second to the femur. It's just so painful. Um, sneezing would break a collarbone. Uh, putting on a pair of pants too quickly would break a femur. Uh, coughing would break ribs. By the time I was 18, oh. I had fractured over 200 times. And 
you know, when you hear 200, it's kind of hard to fathom that right. uh, because each bone took four to six weeks to heal. And sometimes there'll be multiple fractures. So if I uh, had a, an accident, which I have had a few times in my life, you know, I would be healing from uh, a broken nose, a collarbone, and three ribs. And so you're managing pain from all different angles, and you can't leave it. And I talk about how pain is, it's an inevitable part of life. Like, it finds all of us, not just physically, but just emotional pain as well. Uh, pain is inevitable, but what my mom and dad taught me when I was young is suffering is optional. You have a choice to suffer. You have a choice to uh, become addicted to the most addictive substance on the planet. And it's not caffeine or sugar. It's pity. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. More human beings are addicted to pity than anything else on the planet. And whenever you are feeling sorry for yourself, you are putting yourself into a disabled spot. Um, and it's a conscious choice to feel sorry for yourself. Um, and many of us feel justified. In fact... I think most of the human race would allow me a uh, get-out-of-jail card for right. feeling sorry for myself because of the cards I was dealt. But I think what's made all the difference in my life is at a young age, I found that when you do feel sorry for yourself, people back away from you slowly. And I didn't like that. And I found when you make light of things and you have fun and you make people laugh, they, they creep toward you. They, they, they inch closer to you when you bring them good feelings. When they feel sorry for you, they slowly back away. And so at a young age, I said, well, I want people close. Um, and in my condition, I believe that one of my survival instincts was uh, human connection. You know, and connection is an exchange of humanity. It's an exchange of emotion. And when people connect, they feel it. They don't mean, maybe they don't know what's happening. They just know that there's that bond that's being built. And so at a young age, I became really intrigued by connecting with others. And then as I got older, I wanted to do it as a profession. And so I still to this day, I am never satiated on connection tools. So if, you know, whether it's being a trainer of NLP that I went and spent a good 10 years of my life going mastering a doctorate of clinical hypnosis to understand the unconscious mind that I spent many years of my life to behavioral science to even down to the biology of just understanding pheromones and these things that maybe we don't consciously release but they're always an actor and interacting with us just I'm somebody that if there's another level of understanding on how you and I can bond deeper I want to know it uh, because I selfishly know that I will go further in my life and I will have a better existence if I know how to bond closely with you. How do you respond if someone sees that you're in a wheelchair and they come up and, and they just naturally come towards you with pity? Like, like what, what goes through your mind and then yeah. how do you deal with that? So that has a lot to do with them. Yeah. Um, and very little to do with me. Um, and so therefore I don't have to Take it personally. <laughs> cool. So therefore, I don't have to be defensive. See, I I upset a lot of people with disabilities, unfortunately, because I don't associate with my highest uh, identity being disabled. Because disabled means not able. Right. And I'm not going to walk around like a donut doesn't walk around going like, 
oh, I'm missing all, all this thing in the center. I'm a loser. No, it's a donut. You're able to dunk it <laughs> into the coffee or the hot cocoa. Like, that's what makes a donut unique, you know? But most people go around their whole life like donuts, upset that something's missing. Like, oh, I can't be this tall or I'm not from that family or I don't have this, you know, background. And really, when you spend all your life identifying with what's missing, you're miserable versus what do I have? What can I learn from? How can I grow? What can I uh, contribute? And so when somebody comes at me with that, like feeling sorry for me energy, I'm not upset with them. I, I, I never even went through that phase because I know that it's they're viewing my world through their lens. So they're saying, well, I would want people to feel sorry for me if I was in his shoes. They're, 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 they're showing their hands so quickly. And so I just let them know, you know what, I, I, I see that what you're coming at with me is, is a form of connection. You're trying to bond with me or you want me to feel loved or you want me to feel that you're empathetic and thank you for that. But you're wasting your time with the way you're doing it because the way you're doing it is at a vibration that I'm not interested in. Um, yes, I'm three feet tall. Yes, I'm in a wheelchair. Yes, I get stared at, and I have to go about certain daily activities dramatically different than you might. But let me tell you, I've had heartache like you. I've, I've been confused. I've been lost. I've been scared. I've been so angry. I've, been, I've felt slighted. I felt like the world's unfair. I can relate to your world internally far more than you can imagine. And so when I, when I just try to re-educate somebody on the, the wasted energy of pity, um, and then also maybe even if they let me in a little bit more, see where are they feeling sorry for themselves. Maybe they feel like they, like I worked with this one guy recently, he's in an arranged marriage. And, uh, you know, he was really young when his parents said, you're going to mar marry this person. And, and, and he didn't want to be with that person. And decades went by and he was miserable. You couldn't tell that on his face or looking at his body how miserable he felt. But let me tell you, he was far more imprisoned choosing to go along with that than what I deal with with my disability. So I'm always looking for a, how can I go inside of their own world and maybe help them snip their own pity. Is there a flip side for that? I mean, you've become really successful. There are, there are very few people who've been seen as much on YouTube uh, as you have. Uh, you're in at least the top 0.1%, I would guess. And so you've become very recognizable. Uh, is, do you get people jealous of your success? Uh, and like, what does that do to you, both the jealousy and just having that level of visibility? So I'm going to tell you an embarrassing story. Um, and the embarrassing story is for a long while, I was obsessed with wanting everybody to like me. Um, I, I did, it wasn't just good enough if you knew me. I needed you to like me and to know that I was a good guy and that I cared about you. And when somebody would show up in my world who didn't know me and they would be like, Sean Stevenson's an asshole or Sean Stevenson is he's selfish or he's only about the money or... His wife doesn't even really love him. It's a prostitute, probably, that he's paying because who would want to be with a guy like him, you know? And when those comments used to come at me, I felt the need to debate every single one of them. Oh, yeah. And I would waste so much time and energy on social media 
offline even, trying to meet the people that were hating on me from a distance that I didn't know to try to convince them, no, no, you got it all wrong. I am a good guy. And what I found blew my mind. And that is they want something to hate because they aren't comfortable with themselves. And so I just happened to show up in their field of vision. But there was somebody else after I was gone. There was another person and another person. And there are some people on this planet that no matter how much you try to give them examples of how you love them or you care about them, the, the world is a good place, they are hell-bent to be angry human beings. And now I've stopped, um, I've stopped trying to reach those people. And the best metaphor I can give you on that is, and I don't know if it's true or it's just a folklore tale, but it really helped me, is it's the Coast Guard. Coast Guard motto. When a Coast Guard is flying its helicopter over a shipwreck and there's all these people in the water and they only have so much room in the helicopter, do you know who they decide to save? I have no idea. The people that swim toward them. <laughs> so when somebody's swimming toward you, they want your help. They want your love. They want your attention. They want your kindness. And I love being around people that swim toward me. I am no longer in the business or in the interest of swimming toward people that don't want me, that won't do the effort to come my way, that are either flailing around in pity like, oh, come save me, or swimming away. You know, the definition of a victim is somebody that runs into a burning building screaming, help me, help me. Right. I don't have time for that. They're going to get us both killed, you know, energetically. And so I now am at this place because of the visibility. I mean... We had one video go to 70 million. That, but then we've, we've added it all up. Over 300 million people have seen my work. Wow. And when you think about those numbers, like that's almost the population of the United States. And it's kind of unfathomable. And it's hard to believe until I start going to airports around the world. And the guy in Lithuania is patting me down. And, and he is speaking to me about how he knows who I am. Or I'm in Switzerland and my massage therapist at the hotel who I don't know is giving me a back rub saying, I love your videos. Thank you so much for what you've done for my child. And like, that blows my mind about how the world really is flat. Like that is so small. Because of technology, I've been able to be in people's lives in ways that were never possible 20 years ago. And you know, to get the reactions for every one person that's hating on me, there's so many more people that are swimming toward me, that love me, and they get my attention now. And so I, I really, I'm more excited about reaching people than convincing people. I sat down once and did the math on, on Bulletproof Radio, which is nowhere near that level. Uh, we'll probably cross 100 million downloads. And I reverse engineered the number of human lifetimes, like entire human lifetimes. And at the time I did the math, it was like 25. And I realized if I'm putting out content that wastes people's time, it, it's like I'm a mass murderer. Like I just wasted 25 lifetimes. Do you ever think about like the impact of the content that you've created when you're reaching that many people? I, I mean, I can't even imagine it. Um, when I put too much time in that, my ego grows uncomfortably. Uh, <laughs> I'd rather just stay on the message because the way when people say how did you reach so many people um it wasn't trying to reach people 
This is about putting out good stuff. Yeah, it's about putting out, really, honestly, this is the way I speak uh, when I'm on stage or on a video. I tell people what I need to hear. That's it. My best speeches, I'm talking to myself. And when, when you're that passionate to try to break through your own garbage, to, to say something in a way that shakes and moves you, the audience listening is the byproduct. That they're, they're the, they get the, the benefit of it. But really, I find that when you go out to speak, to speak or create content for others, it's oftentimes not as uh, genuine and as authentic as if you're putting it together for you. Yeah. And I know that may sound selfish, but it's actually very counterintuitive, but it works. Uh, that matches my experience. One of the reasons I, I write the books I write is that it forces me to think about it so deeply that then I can see it better and I can use it in my own life as yeah, well. Yeah. It, it's sort of an intellectual exercise that someone wanted to look in on. Well, and people trust you when they see that you put something together for your own use. Yeah. You know, like if, if, if I said, Dave, I'm going to build you a car, I would never drive it, but I'm going to build you a car. You'd be like, why wouldn't you drive it? Right. Oh, well, because it, it could break down on me. Well, then why would you want to buy it, you know? So people will say like, oh, do you walk your talk? I don't walk my talk, I wheel my spiel, but it's the same thing, you know? So it's just, you gotta be able to uh, make sure that you're making something that you would use. Let's talk about fear. Uh, you talk about growing up, you had constant pain, and you also though had constant fear of death because you knew from a very young age, they basically said, you're supposed to be dead, and you didn't believe them. But Well, and, and if we're being honest, it's still present. You okay. know, it, it, even after all these years, I, we just, uh, in October, I lost another friend with my disability who was five years younger than me. Mm. And so, you know, sometimes I feel like, um, and, and I hope people don't misinterpret this, but sometimes I feel like I was raised in the ghetto and I wasn't, I was certainly raised in a nice part of town where there was affluence, uh, middle class. But sometimes I feel like I was raised in a ghetto because all of my people that looked like me were dying and dying out of nowhere. And when I would try to explain that to somebody else, they didn't get it. They weren't, they didn't know why this would start to wear on me. But it's like if everybody that looked like you just started popping off and, and dying randomly, uh, you'd be like, when's, when's my turn? It'd be like that deli counter moment where you're holding your ticket going, when are they going to call my ticket? All of us have a, some fear of death sure. uh, because everybody dies. We all pretty much know that. Yeah. I'm planning to do it as late as I can possibly uh, arrange. Smart just, plan. Well, just like you, just like everyone, right? Yeah. Like we all want to not do that now. Let's sure. do that much later. Sure. Uh, but I think the percentage of time that I spend, especially as a young person, uh, thinking about death, it, it probably didn't really enter my, you know, unless you're skateboarding and about to hit a wall or something, you know, you, you, it just doesn't really become a part of your thinking. Yeah. But for you, it, it seems like it's been omnipresent. How did that change you as a, as a human being, just your perspective on life? Mm, I probably wake up every day um, kind of more shocked that I'm here. Okay. And that's kind of a fun little twist of events. Because I think most people, they're, they've convinced themselves that they're going to live forever. Mm -hmm. Like somehow they've got that little story going like, I'm, I'm going to be the one human. I'm going to be that one human that's going to live forever. And 
I didn't have that, you know? Um, it was more like my eyes still to this day, my eyes open, I look around and I'm like, oh, it's still here. And that means I'm, my work's not done yet. Um, to me, I believe, and this is what drives me personally, Dave, is that um, I will only be alive for as long as my mission is needed. Um, when I pass, my mission will be of complete. Um, and when that happens, it won't be a moment too soon or too late. Um, so that mentality, uh, I think, kind of makes it more like a, a fun storybook, you know, versus a monotonous Groundhog Day. Is that a perspective that you think everyone could benefit from? I would hope so. I would hope that if, if you could take on that perspective when your eyes open in the morning, like, cool, another day on my mission, um, that perspective will give you far more fuel. You know, I always say, I got God's caffeine in me, meaning like <laughs> God's caffeine wakes me up out of bed because it knows how many people on this planet are unnecessarily suffering. They put themselves in a prison then they're holding the key in the hand. You know, when, you are, when you're in your own self-pity, it's like being in a jail where you are holding the key. But you're like, oh, why won't anybody let me out? Well, you are the one with the key. Oh, but no, somebody else needs to come and unlock it. No, you're the only one that can unlock it. So I, I'm, every day that my eyes open up, I'm like, cool. We got to get back out there. Uh, let's let's see what we can say and how we can say it to reach a whole new group of people to get them to realize that they got to love their life, love themselves, and have more fun. You know, uh, my highest one of my highest values is fun. If something's not fun, I don't want to do it. And sometimes that that's been to my detriment. You know, there's some things that even in my own business, I probably need to be doing, but until somebody shows me how to do it in a way that's fun, I'm not gonna do it. Um, because fun is, it's just, it's shaped so much of my quality of life, because I've had to go through things that were not fun. And so when there's something that I have choice over, I'm gonna choose the fun. How did you learn to focus on fun in the face of, of pain? Mm -hmm. And I'm partly asking this because I mean, I, it's hard to even compare you know, my own experiences with yours. I can tell you, I didn't know you were supposed to be able to walk without it hurting because I had arthritis in my knees since I was uh, I was 14 and just actually my body always hurt until I figured out some of the core inflammatory things. And I, I remember really clearly when I was 23 for the first time walking across campus going, wow, like I'm not in pain right now. And it was, it was such a weird thing, but it was, it's probably like not even a meaningful amount of pain compared to some of the things you've experienced. I, I'm not trying, yeah, no. I'm not trying to compare, compare the situations, but just to look at what that little bit of, of pain did to me. And it actually just made me angry and it didn't really make me focus on fun at all. Mm, mm. <laughs> but for you, you somehow didn't go to anger and you went to fun, which is different than the connection story you talked about before. How did you learn to place fun there when for many people who, who have any degree of physical suffering, they just drop fun right away and go somewhere else. Yeah. What, what caused that for you? Probably testing. Um, testing out what response did I get when I went to anger? Uh, what response did I get when I went to fun? Um, I certainly have and still do go to anger. 
Um, but I find that anger is um, highly combustible. Like it will, it will propel you. Uh, it's a very flammable, if you will. Uh, but it won't. It's not a. It's not sustainable fuel. You know. And for me, I just saw that fun is sustainable from the standpoint of like. Um, you want more fun, but usually fun doesn't leave a, a trail of of uh, destruction in its wake. Especially if it's because there's two kinds of fun. There's fun from gratification, and then there's fun for fulfillment. And I'm speaking of the fun for fulfillment. You know, like you know, somebody could say like, "Ah, oh, coke and hookers are fun." Well, yeah, that's very gratifying, maybe. But I'm talking about fun from fulfillment, where you're growing and you're contributing. You know, when you you know, like this is fun to me. Like helping uh, bring value into somebody's life that I may never meet, but they're struggling right now. Maybe, maybe the way I say something is just the way they needed to hear it to unlock something for themselves. That's fun to me because I'm contributing. Um, it's also fun for me to be around people that are helping unlock things for me. You know, one of the reasons why I enjoy being your friend is I don't feel like I've ever hung out with you and not learned something. And that, that's not an accident because you're always learning. You, you love learning. That would be my guess. And uh, for me, how did I not stay in anger versus fun? Because the more fun I had, the, the more the, the, the circle of influence expanded. I, I got more access to the planet when I was having fun. I got less access to the planet when I was in anger. Um, I also found that anger caused more pain. Um, I'll give you an example, and this is how wild my body is. When I was a kid, if I was playing a video game, and I was really getting stressed out, my stress and anger, I could fracture my own arm in anger. Oh, wow. So just by being so tense and angry, the muscles would tense and clench, and they would break the bone. And so at some point in my mind, I went, huh, I think peace might be a safer route. So you had the ultimate form of biofeedback. Yep. Yeah. Well, and if you looked at me, you might, you might think like, oh, the relationship he must have with his body. And people might think like, oh, it must be difficult. Let me tell you, I've had 39 years of healing this body, 200 experiences within that 39 years of weeks and weeks and weeks of healing. I have more time in healing than pain. So, like, I have a very good relationship with my body. I, I know when my body needs something. I listen to my body. I communicate with my body. I have a great relationship with my body. I think most people stay so much in that head. They, they discount all this because when you're in physical pain, you are forced to deal with your body. You are forced to pay attention to the moment. You know, pain has been the best teacher of my entire existence. Pain has never let me off the hook. Pain has never said, hey, you can take a vacation day. No, pain shows up and it gets all my attention. And it keeps me far more present than pleasure. Now, that doesn't mean create pain so I can be present. There are other ways to be present. But let me tell you, that is a gift to be able to be so present to everyone's conversation. I'll give you an example here of one of the things that I feel like I have developed in my life. And that is... When I'm interacting with somebody, I like to scan their body. It's unconscious, but I like to scan their body and see how much are they shifting in their chair. 
if they're shifting a lot, they're maybe like dealing with some back pain or neck pain. And, you know, like I'm aware, I'm hyper vigilant to when somebody keeps, you know, doing with this, with their fist, they just keep opening and closing their fingers. Maybe they get some numbness. Like I'm constantly scanning people for like, Hey, what's going on in your body? Like, what's it like to be you? I'm fascinated with that. And, uh, I think most people are kind of oblivious to what it's like to be other people physically. You have a very different take on the world than, than anyone else I know because you've, you've forced yourself and, and maybe to some extent been forced to just hold that bodily awareness. Do you think you see the world, you see other people just fundamentally different? Like, like if, if I was to look at someone, I'm going to see uh, however my brain translates that, that representation. I mean, do you, do you think that what you see in people is different? I mean, do you see their, their energy? Do you see their aura or, you know, do, do you, do you get a vibe from them? Do you think it's similar to the way other people do? All of us see people in different ways, but is yours radically different than most people or, or in the same line or maybe you don't know? Yes. All of the above probably. <laughs> um, I think everybody is viewing the external world based on their internal world. Um, you know, you act, you ask three people to come into this room right now. One's an architect, one's a, a designer, you know, like a designs interior spaces, and one is um, a painter, right? And you ask them to tell me what's in this room. The architect's gonna talk about the windows and the framing and the structure. You know, the, the artist is gonna talk about the colors. Uh, probably have a lot in common maybe with the interior designer, but in the, the negative space in the room. And so like a lot of times we see what we're looking for. Um, but in my world, I probably see people's emotions first. How comfortable are they in their own skin? How comfortable are they with being around my skin? Um, I'll give you a brief story because I think stories give far more examples. Uh, when I was younger, I would go to the dance clubs to meet women. And I was out on this dance floor, and I think I can see a lot about somebody by how a guy in a wheelchair rolls up to them. And this one young lady, I wheeled up to her. She wouldn't make eye contact with me. And she literally said, go away. I don't want to even look at you. Something like that. And my other female friend was with me at the time. She was about to haul off and hit this girl. Like, how dare you? And I told my female friend, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. That has nothing to do with me. Just relax. Let me tell you, she's in far more pain than I've ever been. Because she must either feel ugly all the time, or she must feel like the world's always staring at her and seeing her just for her body. And so she was, she, it was like a poker tell. She was showing how much pain she was in by how she was treating me. And instead of getting angry with her, I just like, just sent her away with love and just like, man, I, I, I hope you get some help, some therapy, some love. I hope that one day, uh, you know, I didn't say this, but I just felt all that. And so the way people treat you has nothing to do with you and it has everything to do with what's going on in their own internal condition. And man, I could feel like the whole human race could get that. We would have so much less trouble on this planet. We'd have so much less war and violence and, and all these problems that we have because we're all just trying to navigate our own internal worlds and then we're bumping up against each other and pissed that somebody bumped up against us and we take it personally. Like, how dare you bump up against me? You know, you just have to have an incredible amount 
of empathy for the human race. Everybody is navigating the best they can. And just some people have really shitty tools. You know, like if I handed you a spoon and said, dig to China, you, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. It would break the spoon after about a few minutes. And then I'd be like, you're an idiot, Dave. What's wrong with you? No, it's because you didn't have a good tool. If I give you a jackhammer, you're going to go further. If I give you dynamite, if I give you a big drill bit that can go into the core of the earth, right? Like the better the tool, the more impact and the further you can go. And so that's why I'm constantly looking for more tools because, you know, I'm put into scenarios all the time where I'm like, all right, Sean, your insecurities are being lit up. What do you got to do to lower these, you know, the impact that your insecurities are having on you right now? I know almost no one who walks around with, with just a, a constant uh, compassion and forgiveness process uh, the, the way you do. Uh, and it's it's something that I've worked on cultivating myself uh, for years and, and some of the you know, spiritual teachers and, and leaders in personal development uh, work on similar practices, but you, you just embody it, not just on stage, because it's kind of easy to you know act a certain way on stage long enough for people to believe you, but just every interaction I've ever had with you, um, you're you're just constantly running that, even if you're tired, which is is just noteworthy and admirable. And, and I'm hoping that listeners just realize a that that's possible, uh, because if you can do it, even having dealt with just the level of you know broken bones that you've had, it, it's I find it just incredibly inspirational. And so I'm I'm just grateful that you just you don't just demonstrate it on stage, but you just live it. Because when when I see that, it's inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. So just thank you for that. You also, once at dinner, talked about what happened uh, when you got a traumatic brain injury, a, a concussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had dealt with one a couple of years ago as well. And uh, at least in, in my experience, that took me out of the level of, of my, my own ability at the time uh, to, to go to gratitude and compassion. It just made me kind of act like a jerk more than I would have liked. Uh, can you talk about what happened when you got a, a traumatic brain injury, like how it shifted your perspective on the world, on yourself? Yeah. I was in an accident where I fell out of my wheelchair. My wheelchair tipped over and I came down on my right side and crushed uh, many bones in my body. I, I broke some ribs, my collarbone, uh, three places in my leg and I fractured my skull and had swelling on the brain and had the concussion and raced to the emergency room. Uh, didn't know if I was going to make it. So scared. And then when I came out the other side of it, meaning uh, they were able to finally stabilize me and take me home in a few days. Um, the, I, I wasn't prepared for a brain injury because I felt like life had handed me a physical challenge and that that's all I would have to deal with in this lifetime. And so I got really good at using my mind and my heart. Um, and then when the brain injury showed up, I was like, wait a minute, I sampled the pity drug for a little bit and I was like no 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 I'm the physically disabled guy not the not the emotional not the psychological this is no no I I can think my way out of this but in that with that injury I couldn't Um, and I think that that happened for a reason uh, spiritually I believe so I could realize that I am not even my tools I am not even my uh, my mind I am so much greater than that Um, But one of the things that I found difficult was I lost short-term memory. So you and I would be talking, and then 10 minutes from now, you would, I would answer 
a question that you'd already asked me, or I would I would ask you a question that I had already asked you, and you'd be like, well, Sean, we already talked about that, buddy. Kind of like almost an Alzheimer's or dementia. And I just remember thinking, like, literally, it was snipped out of my memory bank. So I thought you were just being a jerk or playing a trick on me. Yeah. And so it, it brought up frustrations. Every time I would take a nap, I would forget why I had the accident. So I would wake up freaked out that my body was in all this tremendous pain. And I would start screaming. And then my wife or my parents, friends would have to calm me down and say, like, you were in an accident. This is what happened. Kind of like the movie Fifty First Dates. Right. Yeah. And so that was pretty ridiculously crazy. Um, also, I was on such heavy painkillers for all the pain that I was in that I felt like I couldn't hold on to a positive thought to save my life. And I had never felt clinical depression like that. And literally, I remember crying when my wife was holding me and I was like, why can't I be happy right now? And I had spent my whole life in physical pain, but being able to run to my happy space, um, run to a spiritual connection, run to uh, a thought space in my mind that would let me know that this too shall pass. But that was gone. That was taken from me. And I just had to sit. I had to just sit in the emotional pain. And that was that was very very difficult and for a long while still to this day people will come to me and they'll say hey do you remember when i visited you at your house and the moment they tell me do you remember the images start coming back so they can jog memory but it, i can't jog it on my own um and it's really wild how the mind works and it really has convinced me that memories aren't real they are recreations of what we at that point thought took place but even then you were deleting distorting and generalizing what's coming at you through your five senses and so you weren't even getting an accurate depiction of what was happening then so it's like when when somebody commits a crime they want to get the evidence as fast as possible because the further away that people sit from that time period the, the more fragments show up the, more, the less evidence is real and so when you think back to something that happened to you when you were 20 years old, maybe you were, quote, molested or hurt or, or, or slighted or whatever, and you're, you think that that happened that way, sometimes your, your, your recalling is worse than the actual event itself. That the, re, the reviewing of the movie over and over and over causes people more pain than the actual event itself. So I'm just fascinated with how the mind can't tell the difference between imagination and memory. And that's why, like, it's, it's never too late to reimagine a past that empowers you. Uh, I've definitely spent a lot of time in meditation and all, actually going back and at least telling my nervous system that the past was different than my, my current <laughs> recollection, uh, just because it, it decreases my reactivity in areas where I don't want to be reactive. Do you have a practice like that or something you've done? You've studied NLP for 10 years. You're a, a clinical hypnotherapist. So you have a, a deep level of knowledge about what goes on inside the mind. What do you do for yourself, like to tell your body not to freak out or, or to get control of, of that side of things? Like what's your practice like? Well, it's a series of things. I'm, uh, I'll am i show you when I get a chance. I, I have my journal with me and 
my journal is a list of self-care activities. And I'm meticulous at uh, checking them off as I go throughout my day. Um, because I'm somebody that I found that um, when I don't stay on top of my self-care, uh, my life can unravel quickly. And I, I venture to say that anyone can unravel yeah. quickly when they're not taking care of themselves, especially if you choose to live a life with a lot of uh, effort, that you know, stress, and you have lots of employees, and you have lots of uh, goals and projects, and you have your children, and all these different spinning plates that if you're not taking care of yourself, you can derail your whole destiny. Um, so when I look at, like, how do I keep my body calm, uh, it's a series of probably... 16 things i don't do them all in one day but if i can get like four to eight of them done in a day my body is able to work with me not against me um and there are things like um kundalini breathing exercises like the breath of fire um stretching just just getting your body to hold a stretch for just five to ten seconds um massage um journaling you know i'm convinced i would have killed myself a long time ago if i hadn't discovered journaling i'm convinced um, because by writing out the things that i've felt and gone through i'm validating my existence to myself i'm validating that my fears and my feelings they may not be real but they're real to me and by validating your own existence there's something cathartically healing about it. Um, so journaling is a big part of keeping my nervous system uh, smoothed out. Uh, also, you know, I do a, a lot where I like to go out into nature and just sit under a tree and just connect with nature around me. You know, I, I moved from Chicago to Arizona because I wanted to be outside more. You know, I couldn't, my bones could not handle the harsh winters. People complain about the heat. Are you kidding me? You don't have to scrape heat off your windshield to open your door, right? You don't, you don't have to shovel heat, you know? <laughs> when I would wheel in Chicago, there would be that black, crusty salt roads, you know, road salt mixed in, and then it would get on my hands and just, I was trapped a lot because of the, te the temperatures or the snow. I don't mind this heat at all. Uh, so for me, just also getting out, moving. Um, but like I said, there's 16 things that I could pay attention to at all times. If someone came to you tomorrow, Sean, and they said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what advice would you offer them? Just three pieces of advice. Uh, make your life about so much more than just you. Find why you were born. Write that question down in your journal every day. Why was I born? And then answer it and continue to answer it until finally when you've got an answer that makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, you know you will have the answer. Um, I was born to rid this world of insecurity. Um, there's no greater vehicle than the vehicle I chose to grab the attention of the human race on the topic of insecurity. If Sean Stevenson says you don't have to be insecure, that has a way different impact than if Tony Robbins 
says, you don't have to be insecure. And I've learned so much and I love Tony, but at six foot seven built like a God, it's harder to believe that man <laughs> than it is a three foot tall guy in a wheelchair that says you do not have to uh, feel like you're not enough. So number one, find out why you were born. Um, connect to that. Have that get you out of bed uh, more than anything. Number two, uh, really befriend yourself. Um, you're going to have lovers and friends and family come and go. People are going to die. People are going to hate you. They're going to move away from you. They're going to leave you. Things are going to happen naturally just by going through your existence. And the one person you'll have from this breath to your last is you. So spend time in your mirror, really getting to know that person, loving that person, acknowledging that's why journaling is important. I know who Sean is. I continue to ask Sean, what does he need? What does he love? What, what, what attention uh, is he um, calling out for? Um, so really get to know yourself and befriend yourself. Love yourself. Um, and lastly, learn as much as you can. Uh, fall in love with learning. Uh, there are enough books already written that if people stop writing them now, you couldn't spend the rest of your life reading them all. Um, there's so much beauty on this planet from, from biology to chemistry to physics to anthropology to psychology to sexuality to politics to... Oh, there's just so many things to study Become addicted to learning. You can be all by yourself and never run out of stuff to learn. There's millions and billions of bits of information out there that can be pulled up by your fingertips that if you just got access to a sliver of it, you would better yourself, your family, your friends. I have never regretted learning something beautiful. Sean, thanks so much for the answer. Thanks for this interview. And just thanks for being one of the biggest human beings I've ever met. Like I just, every time we get to hang out, I'm just like completely in awe. So, so Dave, I want to put you on the spot it. right now. I, out of a flash, I get these premonitions every once in a while. And I want to see if this would interest you. I have a premonition of you and I going on a solo road trip. Just going on a road trip, I don't care if it's from Phoenix to Flagstaff, but just a road trip, just you and I talking about life. Would you want that? Oh, heck yeah. All right, let's plan it. All right, this will happen. Beautiful. Oh, awesome. Sean, people, you're pretty easy to find. SeanStevenson.com, S-C-A-N-S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-O-N. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, Sean has wisdom and just talks about stuff that is very hard to put words to and has studied it at a level... Um, that frankly I haven't, and he's one of the people that I learned from, and I hope you learned some, something from this episode. Uh, have an awesome day, and hopefully this was just as awesome for you as it was for me. Thanks, Dave.
A human upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.